This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Final Days of Jesus, Selections from the Gospel of Matthew. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. We've been working our way through the final week of Jesus, um, the, the final week in the life of Christ. Um, before his death. And now we're going to be spending some time this Sunday, next Sunday, looking at uh, his life still on earth before he ascends back into heaven, um, where he interacts with his disciples and gives commands to his followers. So go ahead and turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be spending some time here at the end of this gospel, the end of this letter that was written by Matthew. So Matthew 28, digging in to verses 9 through 20 uh, this Sunday and then a little bit more next week. Let's pray and uh, we'll get to work. Jesus, thank you for allowing us the privilege and opportunity this morning to be able to open your word without much fear at all, to hear it preached, to hear it read, to hear it sung. I pray to see it lived out in this room with these people. Lord, uh, allow us to be free from distraction and grant us uh, incredible focus as we hear from you this morning, as we get a greater glimpse of who we are, of who you are, and what you have called us to do. Thank you, Jesus, for your help, for your promised presence in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Jesus is betrayed, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's crucified, he's murdered. He's buried, but then as we acknowledge every year on Easter and every Sunday, and I pray every day uh, as, as Christians of the Axis specifically, that we celebrate his resurrection where he beats death. Look in chapter 28. We're going to read for context sake, starting in verse 1, landing specifically in this text Uh, for our preaching time this morning in verse 9. But let's read from verse 1, Matthew 28. Be encouraged by the reading of the Word of God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, the tomb of Jesus. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards that were there at the tomb trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And now for our passage this morning, look in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now, the disciples who just abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need, he didn't bait and switch. He promised he'd meet him. He didn't expect them to find him. He found them. And he doesn't say what was up with two days ago. He says, greetings. Don't miss the grace that's there. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. 
And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell not my betrayers. Don't go tell my cowards. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Guaranteed. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And I'll provide a summary of what that conversation most likely went like. Okay, so there was an earthquake, and I saw this angel. He looked like lightning, uh, really, really strange, bright clothing. We passed out. And when we woke up, we saw the stone that we were guarding. It was rolled away, and we've lost Jesus' body. And when they had assembled, verse 12, with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell the people this. Tell them that his disciples came by night. This is the swoon theory, the stealing of the body of Christ. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him through money and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This continues even here today in Nashville. This isn't new. And when Matthew includes this conspiracy, he does so in order to tell of how ridiculous it is not to give it credibility, but to point out how absurd it was that people actually thought that the body of Jesus was stolen. Here, the religious leaders, what they're doing is they're conspiring together in order to preserve their religious and political influence. The soldiers faced possible execution for sleeping on guard duty. It's one of the most severe offenses while occupying a foreign territory. In cooperating here with the Jewish leaders, they at least have a chance to save themselves and escape the punishment that they deserve. And it would take quite a large sum of money to persuade the soldiers to spread the cover-up story because, again, sleeping on guard duty was a capital offense. But Pilate's reputation was well known, and if the story reached his ears, he could be satisfied with a financial bribe as well. Now back to the Scripture. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. It's interesting. Some doubted. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that some of the 11 doubted, though it certainly could. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus appears to over 500 of his disciples, 500 of his followers. He had many more than his original 12. He had hundreds of followers. Perhaps this is some of that larger crowd that initially doubted. Regardless, we see 11 disciples here, and this is a way of pointing to the fact that Judas, the betrayer, was not with them, but also Peter, the coward who denied Jesus, is present despite his failure. And also, despite all 11 running in fear two days earlier, two and a half days earlier, they're all back together in one place. The point is the 11 disciples were present. And Jesus came and said to them, the worshipers and the doubters, his followers, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the Great Commission where Jesus deploys his disciples, his followers on mission 
to make disciples. He is giving us this great commission. Don't miss the call to obey. Don't, don't, don't miss grace in knowing the call to obey. Look at the grace that is uttered by Jesus Christ as he gives the great commission. I'm a Christian because of these words that Jesus gave these initial disciples. This was for the Jews. His work was primarily for the Jews. Here, he sends his work and his kingdom to the Gentiles. That includes me and most likely includes you. He says, go, therefore. Therefore, we always want to know why it's therefore, right? So you look back, all authority has been given to me. I've beaten death. There is no fear of any foe any longer. I have all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples loaded with grace here of all nations, not just Israel, of all nations, of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." The nature of this discipleship that he's calling them to is spelled out in two further actions that we're going to look more into next week, and that is baptizing and teaching. Notice here, before we get into what it looks like to make a disciple, let's first notice that placed around this great commission of going and making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, packaged with bookends, are incredible pieces of encouragement that Jesus gives these disciples and gives us as we live out this task that he's placed before us. But also these bookends are to help us in whatever it is that God has called us to as Christians. Not only the Great Commission, which is for all Christians, but also for specific callings that he has placed on certain Christians. Notice that there are two powerful statements about Jesus and not necessarily us about Jesus and his call to carry the gospel to every tongue, tribe, people, baptizing them and teaching them. See, he communicates to the disciples and to us that some of these earth-shaking results of his resurrection include that he is now the authority over all things and he is now able to dwell with every one of his followers. He is the authority and he is with you. Incredible bookends around the great commission given to the church, given to you as Christians. Bookend one, I am the authority. I have all authority. So this begs the question, well, who's Jesus and what authority does he have? Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, goes like this, Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, speaking of his resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians chapter 1, God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ages to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The point is, Jesus is bigger and stronger than anything that you will face, whether it be within you, around you, or before you, as you obey him in following out in obedience the Great Commission. In this way, we are more than conquerors because Jesus is the victor over all things. So as you follow in obedience, do not be slowed by the fear of the things around you or the fear and anxiety within you. Jesus tells us that he has all authority over all things. This all means that Jesus isn't merely Lord and Savior and sovereign King over Christians. This means that Jesus is Lord and sovereign King over everyone and everything in all time. Therefore, go. Book in number one. The second book end, he says, I am with you. I will not leave you, even based on your performance and how well you obey this commission or not. The words here, with you, powerfully echo the name Emmanuel found in Matthew 123 of God with us. This is who Jesus really is, is God with us. Jesus isn't looking for perfection in performing the Great Commission. Jesus wants his followers to be excited about him and to spread that excitement with other people and to share what Jesus has done for you with others. I mean, these are some of the final words of Jesus Christ before he ascends back into heaven. And these oddly parallel with the last words of Moses given to the children of Israel before he died Back in Deuteronomy chapter 31, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And then one verse later, he turns to Joshua and he says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Therefore, do not fear or be dismayed. This is the very thing that Jesus is communicating to us before he leaves the earth. And in this way, he's the greater Moses, comforting the new Israel, those of the new covenant. Though Moses promised that God would be with them, here Jesus as God promises that he himself, being God, will be with them, ultimately fulfilling the promise made by Moses thousands of years earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Christians, we can be perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Church, we may be persecuted, but not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. 
Allow this truth to not only produce obedience in carrying out the great commission that Jesus gives us here, but allow this never deserting promise of Jesus produce a vigorous boldness in your obedience to take this gospel and make disciples and see them baptized and teach them what you've been taught and what you are learning. Jesus grants us his presence to fill us, encourage us, change us, comfort us, and guide us. And he's telling us this so that we will actually rely on this, so that we'll, we'll truly lean on this. He is with us, is given to us to allow us comfort, but also to rely on him and not on our efforts and our own abilities but to actually rely and trust on his spirit to propel us and empower us and supernaturally work in ways that we ourselves cannot work. This mission is, it's not based on who we are or what we do. Rather, it's based on what Christ has done and his presence through his spirit working in his people. This mission is based on who Jesus is and what he's able to do in and through your life. He being the one who is faithful to complete the work that he starts. He doesn't know how to leave a task undone. He finishes it. My prayer is that we will lay aside small dreams and worldly ambitions and that we would give Jesus a blank check of our lives and following him wherever he may lead us. And when the Spirit works among a given church, that church can shake the nations for the glory of God. My prayer through this sermon is that people would leave the Axis Church, not because they've been upset, but because they've been sent, and they've realized more and more the call on their lives as Christians to go and take this gospel to the world. As a church, may we not be good at certain things and miss obeying the great commission that he's given Christians in the church. Powerful bookends that he comforts us with. All authority. He's bigger than anything we're going to face. He's with you to comfort us and calm us. Today, we're going to look at the call of going and making disciples Next week, looking specifically in baptizing and teaching. So he says, go and make disciples. Well, what's a disciple? A disciple is an intentional, passionate follower of a teacher or rabbi. A disciple doesn't merely want to know something. A disciple wants to know someone. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is consumed utterly consumed with the desire to be just like Jesus, to wake up, to eat, to drink, to think all about what it looks like to be like Jesus, to know, love, and obey God more and lead others to do the same. A true disciple is one who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. So how are we doing at making disciples? And how do we know If we're making disciples of Jesus, well, if they're becoming more like you than like Jesus, you're not making a Christian disciple. But if you're making them look more like Jesus and less like yourself, then you're probably making a disciple because you're not the goal. Jesus' likeness is the goal. And by the way, to put us at ease here, discipleship and making disciples is not for varsity Christians or those who have masters of divinity in their education. 
We all make disciples. We effortlessly make disciples. I can make a disciple out of beef jerky, basketball, popcorn, cars, neighborhoods, and restaurants. Effortlessly. It's easy for me to get excited about things. It's easy for you to get excited about certain things too. By the way, I make some really good popcorn, if you're wondering. (laughs) Say so. So what are you making disciples of? A couple weeks ago, well, a couple months ago, um, as I was getting my hair cut, my barber kept talking about KFC hot chicken. I love Hattie B's. I like Pepper Fire. KFC hot chicken, not real sure of, right? As hopefully you would understand. So I wasn't going to try it, but he, on two different appointments, continued to talk about it, show me pictures of it, and challenged me to go at least try it, right? So I did. I left, literally, I left that appointment and drove straight down Rosa Parks, down 8th, went to KFC, and I tried it. It wasn't bad. It was actually, I was impressed. I was impressed. I bought some that day and didn't finish all of it because I wanted to share it. So I took it to Pastor Nate, and I shared some with him. He tasted it. He liked it. Now, I'm not saying it's better than Hattie B's. I'm just saying it was, it was good, surprisingly delicious. Sounds like an ad. All right. Then I overheard later, a couple weeks later, Nate mentioning to someone else that they should try it, that it's pretty good. Making a disciple of chicken is not complicated. Making a disciple of Jesus shouldn't be either. It's difficult for me to admit that I find it easier to make a disciple of chicken than Jesus. Though both are, both have the same difficulty. You know how to make a disciple. Use that God-given ability to make a disciple of Jesus. You don't have to stop making disciples of popcorn and chicken. I'm not saying have, a, have dull palates and dull taste and, 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 and nullify any cultural relevance that you may have getting excited about other things. But in spreading the things that you love to other people, would Jesus be preeminent in your schedules and preeminent in your conversations as you talk of one who you have tasted and seen that he is good and that he is forgiving and that his love is never ending? And it doesn't just feel for a meal, it feels for eternity. This call to make disciples and to go out is a call to intentionally go. This isn't aimless. You don't drift to going. You don't drift to making disciples. While this is certainly as you are going to make disciples, it's also more than that. It's more than just as you're going throughout normal life, though it includes that. This certainly includes inviting other people to your church gatherings, but it's more than that. The disciples were not to be about superficial responses to Jesus. Rather, they were seeking total commitment to this new community of faith called the church. And they were seeking total commitment of those who were giving their lives to be governed and ruled by everything that I have commanded you. 
This isn't a call to go and make converts, though that's included in it, of course. At the heart of this call is to make disciples. At the heart of this is to reorient your life less and less around the American dream and more and more around the gospel call to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. So more than as you are going, this begs the question of, am I going where I should be going? Is there purpose and intentionality in the directions that I'm walking in life? In other words, this call should force us to ask, are my habits assisting me in being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are my habits assisting me in making disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ? Is my job assisting me in making disciples who make disciples of Jesus? Should I pray about my profession and career to see if I should change paths, change locations? Should I consider taking my knowledge and my skills and training and move to another country or a different neighborhood where I could use my skills and this gospel call to make disciples of those who are unreached and who've never heard of Jesus Christ? The call to make disciples doesn't come as an add-on to your dream. Just add this on to what you're already doing. That is not how this comes to us. The call to make disciples comes to us as a way of demanding that we reconsider absolutely everything in our life, even eternity. It should, it, it should cause us to reconsider how we live life and where we live life, how we spend time, where we spend time how we spend money, and where we spend money. So I ask you, as I've asked myself in preparing this today, how intentional are you about following Jesus as a disciple? How intentional are you in making disciples? Jesus makes it very clear that this is the call of the Christian, of every Christian. This doesn't require that you pray and discern if this call is for you. Stop it. Don't pray that. It is for you. This just requires obedience because of what we've been commanded to do. Pray for power. Pray for courage. Don't pray whether this is for you or not. This is for you. If you're a Christian, this call is for you. So then we should pray asking God for the heart to take this seriously, for a willingness to obey, for us to let loose the things of this world, including our self-entitled comfort, and grab a hold of the things that impact the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever, and not just for 40 years in retirement. Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, tongues, tribes, people groups. And it's because of Jesus' resurrection that this message of the kingdom, the gospel, is no longer to be limited to the Jewish nation, but is to be proclaimed to every nation and every person everywhere on the planet. This isn't a wish or a good suggestion from Jesus. This isn't something that's reserved for varsity Christians, because there is no such thing as a varsity Christian. This is a command that is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus first spoke these words to his disciples. And I tell you, it is imperative that the disciples not miss this vital command then nor now. The disciples then and the disciples today are to go into the entire world in the power of the Spirit sent by Jesus as witnesses of his saving work. 
And according to Jesus' post-resurrection teaching, being a Christian is defined on whether or not we obey this great commission. This is a mandate that is to define the very existence of his followers. This mandate isn't a call to Christians to comfortably come and sit in one location on a given Sunday. This is a call to action that all Christians must obey. This is a call to redefine the purpose and ambitions of your life. This is a mission that we're called to carry out with great intentionality, with great focus, and with significant sacrifice. This is a costly call to Christians. And this will rub against those who don't see the kingdom as worthy. It'll cause confusion of those who aren't fighting to obey this. But regardless, share the word of God with your friends and with your family. It is truth. It grants freedom. It never returns void and always accomplishes the purposes of God that he intends for those words. It is wisdom. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ as the true and sure hope that changes people, that's changing you. Invite people in on what it's like to be changed from the heart out to the hands and not merely through the hands towards the heart. Teach the word to your heart and to others. Share with the world. Share with your neighborhood Serve them. Move your life to another street, to another neighborhood, or another country as you're led to obey this command. This isn't a general command to make disciples among as many people as possible, though that's part of this. This is a specific command to make disciples among every people group in the world. And right now, there are 16,475 people groups in the world today. 16,475. There are 6,664 people groups that are unreached. They have no Jesus, no gospel presence whatsoever. To put it to you this way, there's 7 billion people in the world today and over 3 billion have never heard of Jesus Christ. This tells me that we need passports for more than vacation. We've identified at least 92 different people groups in Nashville, Tennessee. 92. 35 have little to no gospel influence. In your city, there are unreached peoples. It's as if God sent the early church to the nations, and because of our devotion to the American dream, he's having us in the nations to us. South Asian Indians, 12,000 unreached in Nashville today. Kurds, 13,000. Vietnamese, 9,000 unreached. Chinese, 12,000. In the Nashville area, there's 35,000 Muslims from the Middle East and Asia and Pakistan. Unreached. So I ask you, are you desiring and seeking the temporal and eternal good of your neighbor with the same zeal, ingenuity, creativity, and perseverance that you seek your own? This is a call for us to take seriously and to obey. Are we praying for these groups of people? Are we researching where they're living so we can move and befriend them for the sake of the gospel and their salvation? 
Pray and ask God for a burden. God, this should concern me. And it doesn't. Can you move in my heart so that I'm concerned? Jesus was concerned for an unreached people group. He left heaven to come to earth, to live in it and to love it and to serve it and to point the world to something greater. This is the same call that we have. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. And he's promising us himself as he sends us. And he's guaranteeing not only his presence, but also his power. Do not be afraid. Remember the first bookend. I am the authority over all. I promise you my power needed to fulfill and obey this charge. I'm giving you the ability needed to obey. The second bookend, I am with you. This is my presence. I'm giving you the power needed. I'm giving you the presence needed to obey and fulfill this charge. I'm giving you the ability in my power. I'm giving you the stability in my presence. That should comfort us. He is over all and he's with us through it all to look at it that way. So Christian, Jesus has already told us to go and make disciples. Again, this requires no prayer to see if this call is for us. It is. He's clear about it. Now let's go. Knowing that he's over all and that he is with us. Your life will find great purpose in living out this command and commission that he's giving. This is why you were created. This is part of the reason why you are who you are and where you are. Those who aren't Christians that are here with us today, man, turn to Jesus and get in on his mission. Get in on his kingdom. Be a part of something that is joy-filled for everlasting upon everlasting. And you will discover great purpose in knowing and obeying Jesus Christ. Please deeply consider these things. Take these things to heart. Press into prayer over these things. And Axis Church, I'm calling us to obey this. Obey this. Understanding His power and understanding His presence. And there is gospel motive. Do this because He's done this. He has earned the right for us to do this. But also do it because He's the authority and He says to do it. He's the authority over all things. He says, go, go, go. When we are disobedient to go, we're not just saying something about us. We're saying something about him. Don't you know that, that I'm afraid? In other words, I, th I think you're ignorant. Like, I don't know if you meant to call me because you don't understand who I am and like my fears he says go, meaning he knows that you are more than able with his presence and power to accomplish what it is. It doesn't depend on you. If it depended on you, you wouldn't need him to come from heaven to earth to make it possible. It depends on him. So obey this with the humble yet, the, hum the, the humility yet boldness of saying, God, I'm doing this, and if this fails, I'm relying on you so heavily that it's on you and not me because I'm honestly stepping out, trusting in you because I cannot do this on my own. Obey this. There are thousands of people that will be rescued to his presence from hell 
as you obey this. Great sacrifice today. Yes, this is not easy. But one day, through trillions, quadrillions of years into the future, you will be thrilled that you gave just a little bit of sacrifice for the incredible amount of joy that you get to experience when you experience the satisfaction of seeing people that you loved a part of that great crowd around the throne making much of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. So go. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your help this morning. Thank you for this encouragement and this charge that you have given us. We thank you that you've granted us essentially all that we need to fulfill what it is that you've asked us to. You haven't asked us this to fail. You've asked this, Lord, so that you will continue to move your kingdom forward, continue to advance your kingdom forward. Lord, I pray for scales to fall off our eyes in regards to how we live our lives and that we would see our calling as you see it. Lord, that we would understand our street and our city as you see it. That we would understand the foreign nations around the world as you see it. Lord, I pray for passports to be purchased so that people can be granted visas and they can share the gospel around the world. Lord, I pray for people, a part of this church family, that are going to be putting their homes up for sale and moving into other neighborhoods to take the gospel there, to move into apartment complexes, to care less about the American dream and care more about the heavenly kingdom. Lord, that you would do this work in us, that you would shake Nashville, Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, that you would shake the world. Because a small church in downtown Nashville, Tennessee started taking you seriously and started honestly relying on you for what was needed. God, do this. And would we all stand in all of your glory and majesty and magnificence as we see people changed? And would we not take credit for anything that's done? How silly, how absurd. Protect us from that. Thank you for the invitation to get in on what you're doing. Thank you for the command to get in on what you're doing. Help us here, Jesus, please. Add your blessing to these people. Thank you, Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen.